I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and this is the Dying to Ask podcast. Real quick before we get into today's episode, which is really good, by the way, I want to quickly mark a milestone for this show. We launched about two and a half years ago, editor extraordinaire Brian Lau and I were just talking about this this morning. We have well over 150 episodes. He thinks it's closer to 180. I know we lost some at one point, but I don't remember how many, so it's it's north of 150, which is still awesome. And, and this is exciting, can't afford like a real drum set in here, um, we just crossed 300,000 downloads. It's kind of a big deal. If you know anyone else who has a podcast that is not run from like Wondery, <laughs> ask them if that's a big deal. We're very excited about it. And the really exciting thing is that we've hit almost every goal that we have set for the show, and by we I mean me. Um, with the exception of one or two, I still have a few things I'm trying to do. Um, the goal that I didn't set, but that I didn't know was such a big deal when we got started in this podcast is the metric about how long you guys actually listen to the show. So they call it listenership. And it means from the time you hit play till the time you hit stop, how long did you listen to the show? And you dying to ask listeners hang in there pretty much the whole time, which is in any kind of broadcasting medium, a big, big deal. And it says a lot about your attention span. It is good. Most shows don't have that. And um, so it's a metric that I'm really proud of and is very exciting to us. So thank you so much um, just for not turning it off <laughs> for listening. So in return, I do promise <clears throat> to do my best not to waste your time. It's my pet peeve. And we're working hard to get to the good stuff quickly. And that is why the reviews matter so much and why you'll hear us talking a lot about that in the show, leaving those ratings and reviews. It really helps grow the show and lets other people know about it. And I think this is one you're going to want to share today. On the show today, we are talking money. True story. I once walked out of a financial planner's office when I was in my 20s, when he told me about the future as we were planning for it, and he said, you know, you'll probably get married and that will help you with your retirement planning. I know he didn't mean to offend me, but it offended me. <laughs> it did not go over well. Because even early on, I was thinking about like, how am I going to pay for stuff when I'm old? Like, I've always been thinking about that for a variety of reasons. So as it turns out, I did get married. I do have a financial partner in life. But the point is that all of our relationship with money, it still has to be a personal one. And it needs to start a lot earlier than it usually does for most of us. Ashley Feinstein Gersley is on the show today. She's the author of Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. She's written the book that she says she wished that she had when she was younger that, by the way, is the key to writing nonfiction, is write the book that you need. And she did. She is a personal finance expert and author, a public speaker. 10 years ago, she created the Fiscal Femme Online. It is a money platform with the goal of eliminating inequity by leveling out the financial playing field. You know how you level it, friends? You learn, you teach, you share. So basically, you help people, mainly women, de-stress the relationship that a lot of us have with money. Money is complex. Our relationship with it starts at home, watching our parents, the struggles that they have, and what they did to navigate it. And generationally, we haven't been great about passing on a lot of those lessons. And unfortunately, a lot of us, myself included, learn a lot about money by making those mistakes, but you don't have to. So on this Dying to Ask, we'll talk about how Ashley got into the finance world. We'll talk about what is financial adulting, how rebranding words like retirement and savings 
can change the way you look at money. She calls them by some different words and it's purposeful. And she'll leave us with three things you can do right now to change your money mindset and perhaps change your money trajectory as well. Ashley Feinstein-Gersley is my guest this week on Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I thought I had seen and covered it all. Then came coronavirus, a pandemic, anchoring in my living room, homeschooling my kids, and all the things that come with COVID, including a vaccine. It was supposed to get us all back on track of living our best Instagrammable lives. Best lives-ish. The reality is we're still untangling what life looks like in a world post-pandemic. A lot of people describe a sense of never-ending overwhelm and anxiety. Is that just what life is like now? Or are there ways we can get back to living in the now? And this season of the Dying Desk podcast is asking how we can hit the restart and start living again. Ashley, welcome to the Dying Desk podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you. I love the title of the book, Financial Adulting. <laughs> what was the genesis of the book? Where did the idea come from? So the title or, and the name of the book, Adulting to me are, is the things that we know we should do to take care of ourselves, kind of these self-care tasks that I, when I was younger, I used to think there was a time where you just became an adult and you felt yeah. like an adult and I'm realizing <laughs> I'm still that, waiting. Yeah, that never happens. But the genesis for the book, my first book was the 30 day money cleanse. It was all around budgeting and money mindset. And I'm still very proud of that book and it's accessible, fun workbook, but after it, people still had a ton of questions. And so my goal with financial adulting is to talk about all the personal finance topics, everything I think someone needs to know to be a financial adult. And it's very much a how-to. It also talks about a lot of the issues with our systems. There is workbook exercises, and I hope it serves as a book that someone reads through. And also it serves as a resource so that maybe they don't need life insurance right now, yeah. but when it comes time, they pull it off their shelf or when their friend texts them about their 401k, they say, oh, hold on, let me just turn to chapter yep. seven. <laughs> So one thing I really love about your story, and I've been following you for years, and I hope I can say this so it doesn't sound awful, but I love that you have true financial education and yet still struggled. Because to me, what you're saying is very real because you have personally road tested some of these things. Yes, definitely. The So much of what I talk about are, my goal is to prevent mistakes that I made or that I, things I wish I knew when I started on my money journey. And it's, you know, I studied personal, I studied finance, never took a personal finance class. They weren't part of my degree. I worked in finance, always focusing on corporate finances, companies, finances, never on my own. And so the, often when I'm introduced, there's these, you know, she worked in finance, she's an investment banker. She went to Wharton, all these things that sound like it would help me with my money that, <laughs> that really didn't. So all of it was on my journey later when I discovered and figured this out. So why do you think there was such a disconnect? Because you are not the only person to go to Wharton or anywhere else who runs into this. So why is there such a disconnect in like, you know, balancing our own proverbial checkbooks now and um, like understanding the big picture? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think I'm seeing more and more schools earlier on offering personal finance education, like in high school and even middle school, which is really exciting because what I've also found when I talk to people, especially parents, 
that the reason they're not talking to their kids about money, it's not, it's not malicious at all. It's just, who am I to teach them about this? I don't know a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. And so it kind of skips in the home and then we're not being taught in school. And there's so many funny memes about, you know, I learned how to play hot cross buns in the recorder, or I know how to find the hypotenuse, but I don't know anything about taxes. And money's something we have to deal with almost every single day. And it's not something that we learned about. So it yeah. is interesting. And I, I am hopeful that some of that disconnect will, will shift, but maybe it's going to happen in more of the middle school, high school time. Yeah, it could be. Cause I think for most of us, I totally agree with you. We probably learned from watching at home and whether that's watching like from a scarcity mindset or from maybe having too much. I mean, my memory of money growing up was once a month, my dad would go grab this shoe box and the shoe box was where my mom would throw the bills, right? Mm. And then, and the, and the time, you know, you still had the checkbook register. So the checkbook register where she would scrawl the stuff in was in there too. And he would sit down there and start going through these bills. Now, I, we knew as the kids in the house, we were like, get out. Because <laughs> this is where the discussions were going to start. You know, and that was when I'd hear, you know, I'd hear him like, what was this? And how, why was this so much? And, you know, and it, like that was my memory of money growing up was A, never enough, is there ever? But then right. also B, like it being kind of a source of somewhat friction, but also just like watching the stress. What I recall as I look back at it now with adult eyes is seeing the stress on my parents' face because because obviously they were, you know, struggling more than as a kid, I really understood. So right. it is funny that those are some of those memories that can last with people and really explain how they behave around money for decades. Yes. So true. I have, it's funny. One of the things I have people do to discover their relationship with money is to think back on their first money memory, or also think about how their family interacted with money, their, how their parents did, maybe it's something going on in their culture of like, what was money like mm. there? My first money memory, I used to get an allowance and it, they did a really cool system where a third went to spending, a third went to saving and a third went to giving. And I remember I saved up at the time I had an, it was, I want, it was an American girl doll, similar brand, but I don't, I can't for life of me remember the name. And I saved up for a riding outfit for the American girl. <laughs> Not cheap. $28. Yes. <laughs> and I put all the ones in an envelope and I took, ripped out the catalog and I circled it. I don't even know if I put an address. I don't, I, for some reason I did not get parent help for this and I put it in the mail and I never got the riding outfit. And I think, you know, that it felt very like, what is the point of this? I've saved up. I didn't get the thing. Like, I don't want to deal with money. <laughs> this seems like right. not something I want to be a part of. And that was something that I decided at like age nine. Isn't that funny? You know, I have a um, 16 year old and 13 year old, and it's interesting to teach these kids about money now because pre pandemic, I also did the spending, saving, giving, which worked great. And they literally had three envelopes and it made it very easy. Every time there was something wanted at school or there was a fundraiser at school, they knew kind of where to go. Pandemic mm -hmm. shocker turned everything, you know, on its tail. So like that all kind of fell out. So now back into the real world, as a 16 year old, it is interesting. We are now living in a world where giving your kid cash because you want them to tangibly feel the money and understand it doesn't work a lot right. of the time because a lot of places won't take cash anymore. I ran into this. I'd given them money to get an ice cream from the ice cream man. Easy breezy. They come back looking at me like I'm an idiot. The ice cream man doesn't take cash. 
I'm like, what do you mean the ice cream man doesn't take cash anymore? So it's funny, like as a parent, a lot of the things that we grew up on, even, you know, 10 years ago, like handing over a dollar bill can no longer even be done. And because you don't have that tangible connection with the money, it changes the relationship mentally, but also physically as well. Yes. That is actually something that I talk about in the book is increasing the pain. Sometimes we want to feel spending more because technology has made it so easy to just hop in and out of a lift with yeah. not even paying, swiping, but you're right. There's DoorDash, right. You can even Amazon. Cash. Yeah. I hardly ever have any cash anymore. Yeah. So how do you, how do you combat that? Do you have any, any suggestions on that for younger kids? And then we'll go into, you know, the adulting part of it. I'm curious, like as a parent, what you might recommend. So one, my son is much younger. He's almost five and we haven't really even grasped the concept of spending yet. So definitely not doing saving and giving, but we do tokens and like poker chips. And then we buy things for him because he's buying a book online. We, it's not with cash. So that's something that we do with him. So he earns the tokens to be able to trade the, to- I mean, it's like Chuck E. Cheese. Exactly. He it's gets fabulous. a day if he does his task. I love it. And, he, and it's clear, like when we're at all, it's usually at the end of a museum or something. Can I buy a present? I'm like, well, you have this many tokens saved up. And so it's, I think made a good conversation and has him realize that things have value and that you delay gratification a bit to save up for things if you don't have enough tokens. And he remembers he bought, the first thing he bought was an Octonauts lunchbox and he was so (laughs) proud. He carries it to school. He doesn't want to put it in the backpack. He wants it out. So I think, I think it's working. Um, And for adults, for people trying to be more aware of their spending, despite the non-cash world we're living in, I'm a big fan of tracking our spending because that's really how we get back to it. I think there's okay. a lot of apps that will sync automatically with your spending, but to actually either write it down by hand or type it out in notes on your phone or to put it in a spreadsheet, there's something about that when you have to acknowledge the expense that mm-hmm. reconnects us to, oh, this I made this expense and how did it feel? Like, is that worth it? Is it something I regret or, and just, or just bringing awareness to it in general? Yeah. Making it tangible in some way, since so much of it is intangible. So let's go back a few years to when you decided to get into this personal finance space. How did that happen? I, so my first job out of college was an, as an investment banker. And I, I honestly just wanted to prove I could do it. I knew I was only going to do it for two years, but I made a great salary and bonus and I worked a ton. So I didn't have time to really spend money. So there wasn't really a lot of time spent on figuring out my money. I just, things kind of worked out just because I was earning so much and had no time to spend. And when I switched to a corporate finance job where I'd have a much better lifestyle, I took a pay cut and I had already been in New York city for two years hadn't done much really as far as seeing friends, going out, seeing shows, going to events. And so I started to make up for lost time and did all the things. And in the back of my mind, I knew financially like things were not going well, but it wasn't until that I sat down at my desk, logged in, and I had quit my investment banking job the day after I got my bonus. And I, it was almost- That's a a great day to feel really good about yourself too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, bye. <Yeah. laughs> um, 
the yes and but the bonus was almost gone and I had only been working for a couple months so I thought my lifestyle is completely unsustainable I'm spending more than I'm earning definitely and I'm so much happier I have to figure out this budgeting thing otherwise I'm going to have to go back to a job just for the money and and it 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 made that that mindset shift of oh if I figure this out I get to stay in the career that I want I get to have the lifestyle I want I will, I have that power. It was kind of a, when it, I realized that figuring this out was actually a gift to myself. And so Absolutely. I dug in, in a very type a way, reading a ton of things, articles, books, and adapting what I was learning to work for me. And at the time, this was in around 2010 ish. And there were life coaches were becoming more popular. And I had a friend going through a training to be a life coach and she needed hours. And so we started working together and she challenged me because I was really, I had this fear of sharing my voice on the internet, which is ironic now that I've like, that's all my job. Um, but she challenged me to share what I was learning on my money journey on a blog. And I named the blog, the fiscal femme. And that's really where it all began, just talking about what was working for me. And the response is what had me think, oh, this, this has legs because my friends and other people started asking me for help. Other websites said, hey, can you come write for us? We need more young women talking about money. And I started studying to become a coach myself and help people individually with their money. And so how old were you at the time? That is a great question. I was probably 24. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting that all these people are like, wait a minute, I need help with this too. Because by giving them a voice, you kind of normalize that talking about money is okay, which um, generationally for lots of different generations, it hasn't been okay to talk about for a long time. Yes. And I noticed over time, I continued to be more surprised and more surprised by how pervasive this was that people didn't understand it and needed help. Even if I'm giving a talk at a bank and I say, who should know, who thinks they should know more about money and personal finance? Everyone raises their hand. Or I remember one time meeting with a mentor, uh, an entrepreneur mentor about how to grow my business. And at the end, he's like, hey, can we talk about money? Like, I need some help with money. And I'm like, you too? It's everybody. So I, I do think that this, it, when we talk about it, it, we can, we realize that maybe our best friend sitting across from us at dinner is going through the same things and trying to figure out the same things. And we might've had no idea because it's something we talk about all the time. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, just finding out things like, you know, putting money aside and talking about retirement, I always joke, like there's nothing more boring than talking about retirement until you start to realize like, that's actually out there <laughs> in the not so distant future. And you're like, wait a minute. This is like one of the sexiest things you can talk about. <laughs> not having to work, work optional is actually is really sexy. Cool. Yeah. And that is one of the best rebrandings of the word retirement, by the way, the concept of work optional, which I see everywhere. And I know it's a chapter in your book as well. <laughs> yes, I know. I, the first place I saw it, Tanya Hester has a book called work optional. And so that's yes. where I heard it. And I thought, yeah. This is how I want to talk about retirement. From now yeah, on. Tanya actually lives, uh, I believe in South Lake Tahoe, so not too far from where we are right now. All right, so let's get into the book, Financial Adulting. And um, it's broken down into 14 chapters, everything from you know defining what a financial adult is to talking about equity and personal finance, explaining what you explain, what some of these different terms mean that seem um, 
you know, very, very adult and boring, but they're really not when you get into it. Talk about the, the concept of buying a home and insurance and even becoming your own money coach. So why don't we start at the very beginning um, and talk about like, what is a financial adult in your feeling? I really wanted to define this because I, I think there's a misconception that someone who's a financial adult or a money expert, for example, knows everything and doesn't make mistakes. And the good news and the bad news, the good news is that you can always be learning and growing and making mistakes. And because things change, I interviewed 35 experts for the book and I learned so much and I had already been doing this for 10 years. So things change, your life changes, your goals change. We're always going to be adjusting and growing. But that's also the bad news that we're never done. (laughs) (laughs) Never ending. It's money. So I I think the financial adulting is more of a verb than a place that you arrive. It's like we're taking the actions. We can make it as fun as possible. And I promise this sounds kind of nutty, but people have texted me. I'm reading your insurance chapter and it's not, it's fun and light and funny. And so I think we can have these topics be a lot more accessible and manageable than we've seen in the past. And um, so financial adults take small, consistent steps and that leads to big results. And I think the good news in that is that there sometimes can feel like this pressure that we have to overhaul our finances in one day and be a different person. And that's not sustainable. That sets us up for failure. So just take a step. If it doesn't feel manageable, break it even down smaller. Um, I love that. I love that concept of the small steps leading to big things, which I think, you know, back in the day, they used to call it the latte effect, that idea of investing just like maybe not buying something that you kind of think is, oh, it's only three or $4. I guess it's a lot more than that now, but the idea that money can multiply. Um, And one of the ways you talk about that in the book is the concept of using the word invest versus save. Why is that such a mindset shift? So especially for things like retirement, long-term goals, we say saving for retirement. And there have been situations where someone has messaged me or I've heard stories where someone does the right, like they do the thing that they, they want to be doing and they put the money in the retirement account, but they don't actually invest the money in there. And so it's just sitting there. And like you mentioned, the, the mm-hmm. beauty of compounding and having our interest grow interest and our money grow for us when we have a lot of time for a goal, it's like an amazing thing. So to think about, okay, make sure that we definitely don't want to invest everything we have. We want to have our basis covered as far as our cash for short-term goals, but we want to invest the money. We want to invest and have our money growing for us if we can. And I also think that investing is something that can feel very um, daunting and just, Mm -hmm. we work really hard for our money. We work hard to save our money and we don't want to lose it. And so in the book I work, I, one of the goals is to demystify investing and have us actually understand what is risk and good risk means growth and what are the chances we'll lose money. And so to hopefully ease people's minds and have them excited to have their money grow. I also like how you look at um, the concept of budgeting money and considering it like an act of self-love. I would almost like say like to stay trendy with the time, self-care as well. Because <laughs> there's nothing that will lower your anxiety than knowing that you're at least taking that care of that part of your life. Definitely. And I I very carefully rename a lot of things like mm-hmm. because I do think the language we use is really important. And so the word budget for many 
has negative connotations of taking something away from us, limiting our fun, but, and that can have us ignore it and not want to look at it and have this idea that if we don't budget, we're actually going to have a better time, but really that causes us more stress. And what I found is when we lay it all out, it's a, it's an equation, right? Money in that actually hits our bank account minus our expenses, minus what we want to save for our goals. If that equals zero or more, our budget is workable. And if it's less than zero, which it is for most of us, when we first do this, it, we need to reconfigure things a little bit, but with a budget, if you have the room, you can build in the fun things, the splurges, and you can know that they work with the overall income and goals. And so it can give peace of mind if it can make our spending feel a lot less guilty because we know we can afford something mm -hmm. or we know we're working towards affording that something. So I do find it is an act of self-care and self-love because of those gifts that it gives us, because it's ironic to spend on things and not enjoy them because we're feeling so guilty because we're not really sure if we can. Yeah. yeah. You hear of a lot of people who achieve a certain level of financial success who never really drop the habits too that they had when they had more of a scarcity mindset. You know, like my husband always laughs, you know, when I pull out my coupons or my like my CVS coupons that I hang on to and I leave in the car, I, it probably wouldn't matter if I had like, you know, Zuckerberg money. I'm still going to use that CVS coupon. I just am, right? <laughs> right. It is so funny. And it's interesting to see because I do think hoarding money, right? And not enjoying your money is also an issue. We want that we want to, we don't want to spend so frivolously that we don't meet our goals or that we're in financial duress. But on the other end of the spectrum, like what is the point of having money um, if not for the things that you want to have an experience? So it has been, I had a kind of a funny moment with this summer with my mom. We were in North Carolina traveling for summer vacation and I had, and it, this definitely was because of the pandemic too, but my husband and I hadn't gone out together alone without the kids. We were tired, exhausted, chasing around a newly crawling baby. And my mom was- You just like, described most of America just changed the name of the child <laughs> or the age. Exactly. <laughs> so, so get my you mom right said, now. you need to invest in a babysitter. And I know that takes financial privilege to be able to do that, but yeah. it was something that you know, it was a moment where I thought, great, I'm going to hit these goals and save for my kids college, but I won't have enjoyed their youth because I've been so focused on saving money. And so thanks mom. It was a really, and you know, having more support and just, so it was something that she challenged us to do and we started doing in the fall and it made such a huge difference. So yeah, I have noticed it's really interesting, the saving spending ebb and flow, you know, always trying to find that equilibrium that works for you. Yeah. Okay. So give us, before we end, give us three money challenges or things we could do today that tend to give people a good sense of satisfaction pretty quickly and can actually make a difference. What are three things that we could all try to do a better job on? So I would say first that actually, I love this one because it works no matter what your goals are and your, what you're working on in your financial life is to have money parties. And money parties are time we set aside to deal with our money, to show our money some love because if we don't set aside the time, we have a lot going on. We're not going to actually sit down and do those things we've been meaning to do. So a money party is a time to look at what you spent over the last period. If you're doing them every month, I do them every month. You look at what did my spending look like over the month? Did I meet my goals? Also those nagging financial to-dos that kind of come up throughout the month, you can just add them to the agenda on the money party. 
And this then, is like your rebranding too, isn't it? It's all rebranding. Is there, is there like a money pinata? That's what I need. I need the cash to come out of the pinata as I whack it. <laughs> it's like retirement. You hit the pinata right. and your monthly yeah. stipend. Um, okay. I love it. Have I, a money party. Yes. And they're parties because you want to create them to be something that you look forward to. So I have okay. a money party playlist with songs that I play that pump me up about money. You can have your favorite beverage. You can reward yourself. So just thinking about and testing out ways to actually make it a time that you look forward to. Oh my gosh. If that's number one, what is number two? (laughs) (laughs) So I think, yes, that is a really, I think that's a really important one. I'd say number two is, is to commit to those small steps. And it's easier to commit to the small steps if we kind of map them out in advance. But I would say if we forget the step one week, you know, really practicing, okay, I met, I didn't do my step, whatever. I'm going to pick up where I left off and try to not have to do this perfectly to just keep moving along, trekking along on this financial journey. So, um, with the, with the book, we did have a financial adulting challenge. And so in each chapter, there's a checklist of actions you can do, and you can literally just take the actions from the book and take them as your weekly action or break them down further if they feel big. So I would say committing and the first step to doing that is what's your first step? What's, what are you doing this week? And I think that's what I would um, recommend committing that to someone and then, or having someone commit to that. And then the third is to have some accountability. So are you, do you have a friend that would do this with you that you can, and and I think this can feel a little daunting. You don't have to share that you're paying off X thousand dollars of debt. You can just say, I want to check in that I did my action or we're having our money party or so it doesn't have to show details of your financial life that you don't want to share, but just to have someone to share your wins with, to communicate with about a struggle you're having, or I'm not able to do my action this week, just someone to hold you accountable because when we tell someone we're going to do something, there's a lot higher likelihood that we actually do it. Such great advice. It's funny, as you were saying that, when I remembered a colleague at the station who a few years ago took me aside and said, I have amazing news to share. And the news was that she had paid off her house. As as a single woman, she had paid off her house after decades. And she was so proud of herself. And I, looking back, I'm like, what a great thing to have shared with someone. You know, I actually feel really honored as I look back thinking that she shared it with me and it really was quite an accomplishment. Well, those are three amazing goals. Really like those. The book is called Financial Adulting, Everything You Need to Be a Financially Confident and Conscious Adult. And where can people get the book these days? They can get the book at financialadultingbook.com. And then other places to keep up with you? Other places, I am at the Fiscal Femme, F-I-S-C-A-L-F-E-M-M-E on all the socials, pretty much all the socials. It's pretty easy to find. You might also come across Femme Fatale, but that is something totally different. Right. (laughs) That popped up as I was doing a search. Completely non-money related, but you'll figure it out pretty quickly. (laughs) It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. What are you working on next? There has to be a new book. Oh, that's a great, I think I am in recovery mode. I don't know. I don't have any, it's kind of like, I think similar to having a baby in that you almost have to forget how it was to do it again. Okay. So can I give you an idea? Maybe you're already doing this or thinking about it. I think you need a um, financial child raising type book, you know, Mm. like for kids, because it is changing so much, because the experience that I have with a 16, 13 year old are going to be completely different than what you have with the five-year-old and baby. 
And right. I think that would be really helpful for parents to have kind of some new ideas and being open to it because like kids have debit cards really early now and it right. has completely changed things and how you do things. And you could do it by age almost like here's what. Almost like, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. All it's right. Not that you need more stuff on your list, but that's the one that I think would be really cool. <laughs> the fiscal fun baby. The fiscal fun baby. <laughs> oh my gosh. You'll be working for the rest of your life. It'll be great until you want to, you know, go work optional. <laughs> right. Ashley, thank you so much. Isn't she great? I just really love Ashley and her message, and I love the way she shares it. In fact, I caught her recently on the So Money podcast, which is hosted by another awesome financial voice out there, Farnoosh Tarabi, who's been on this show before. And she actually called Ashley's book the book that should be on everybody's bookshelf. I mean, that's kind of a pinch me moment. That's pretty cool. So go check out Financial Adulting, no matter what stage of adulthood you allegedly are in right now. You can find me on Instagram at runreadsip. You can DM me there. I don't really hang out much on Facebook. You can guess why, but I just like Instagram. It's a lot more fun. So if you have a suggestion of somebody you'd like to hear on the show or topic you'd like me to cover, let me know. I also have been enjoying LinkedIn a lot these days. Different kind of conversation and content sharing there, but I have actually really been enjoying um, following some new people there and learning about their careers. And I've actually found some good guest suggestions from scrolling the LinkedIn LinkedIn feeds as well. So if you'd like to reach out there, I do post some different kind of content for the podcast on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Just search my first and last name and news, and you'll probably find me pretty quickly. Thanks for listening to the Dine Desk podcast today. If you have a minute to leave a rating review wherever you're listening to the show right now, that would be awesome. Even more awesome is just screen grab the show, share it on your social channels, or text a link to the episode to a friend who you think maybe needs a little money mindset makeover. Hey, she was talking about accountability. Send it to someone. Maybe you guys can be financial buddies together. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time on Dine Desk.